Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. So let's pray. And we'll dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you um, that in a world where very few things are consistent, your word is. Should we wish to hear from you? We look at your word. Should we wish to know how much you love us? We look at your word. Should we wish to know what is wise in a world where voices cry out on every street corner? We look at your word and find Lady Wisdom calling out to us above the voices, pointing us to Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God in whom all the promises of God find their amen. We pray today as we examine our hearts that you are faithful to do what you would seek to do. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. So there's a lot of things going on in our news cycle right now that might cause you to have all sorts of Uh, ideas of whether you're optimistic or pessimistic as to where the course of humanity is going right now. But one thing we can agree on is we live in an absolutely remarkable era of human history. We live in Missoula, Montana, where even in the deepest parts of winter, we could go to the store and we could get our avocados from Mexico and our Ethiopian coffees and our produce from South America. We could wake up in our beds get on an airplane and go to sleep the same day across the world. Our interconnected world offers unparalleled opportunities for sharing of health information, educational resources, technological advances, and most importantly, there are wonderful new means, places, and ways where the gospel of Jesus can be proclaimed like never before because of the marvelous way in which our world and our technology has been developed. Yet the downside of our interconnected world is that we often find ourselves anxious to be alone. We're adverse to silence, anxious when we're bored, uncomfortable when there's no music or podcast in our ear or TV show to entertain us or digital community to accompany us. How many of you have accidentally gotten in line and realized you left your phone in the car and you just sit there not knowing what to do? We know this experience. And all of this means that we are a people who in pace and in preference wrestle with the stillness of being alone with our own hearts. We fear that should we stop and think, that behind our distractions, behind our constant busyness, we might find difficult things, challenges we hadn't considered, tasks that we've been putting off, And so we fill our lives with adventures and books and social media and families and things which are sometimes good, but oftentimes we use as escapes. But just today, as we just read, God wants to prepare you for one minute this Sunday morning to stop, to pause, and to do the work of looking into your heart. And as we do this, God's word might come to us like steel wool in an open wound. It might make us feel uncomfortable, but there is good news in this text for each and every one of us. And that good news 
is that even though as we begin the process of knowing our hearts, the Lord knows it even more. And he desires to come into the midst of that discomfort, in the midst of that pain and mess, and to apply the promise of the gospel, which is good news for those who know Jesus Christ. And our main point this morning is this. As we turn to look at our hearts, we can only become comfortable with our own hearts when we become comfortable with the work of Jesus. And we're going to look at this in three ways in four short verses in Proverbs 27. First, we're going to see in verse 19 the reality of our hearts. And then in verses 20 through 22, we're going to look at the exam of our hearts. And then lastly, the hope of our hearts. So to begin, I'm going to read just four short verses for us, and then we'll circle back to our first point. Solomon says this, As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Shale and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Crush a fool in a mortal, mortal, excuse me, I promise I've said this word before, mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. So as we've been reading through Proverbs, we've seen a tendency of Solomon to grab these illustrations and allegories from nature. And he does this intentionally to show that just as nature has norms, just as suns rise and fall, just as ants are busy at work, just as water reflects the face, nature operates consistently. And here he wants us to see that God's wisdom is more consistent than all of the creative norms we've encountered in this world. Looking at God's world, we see nature works consistently. So too is God's word consistent. His wisdom is even more consistent than our reality. For God, for a season in the Old Testament, suspended the movement of the earth around the sun. But God has never suspended his wisdom. The truth of God is inescapable. And with this illustration, he drives our first point today as we see the reality of our hearts. And Solomon uses this metaphor pointing to what is true in creation to point to what is true for you. And he says, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. In other words, it is the nature of water to reflect back what looks in. We see these gorgeous pictures of Glacier Park and Lake McDonald and the mountains reflecting back in all of its picturesque beauty. And you want to know what's adorable? Videos of children discovering their reflection in a mirror. You want to know what's creepy? You videoing your adult roommate looking into the mirror. (laughs) One is adorable because we understand the nuance. It's like this kid is discovering this brand new perspective. They're seeing themselves in a real view which they are not prone to. But for us to just go and creep on an adult in the bathroom mirror is weird because the novelty is gone. They shouldn't be surprised. They shouldn't be like, They're not shocked that the mirror represents back to them who they really are. In fact, it would be frightful if looking into a puddle or looking into a mirror, what stared back at us were someone else. That's something that's remarkable. It's not remarkable that a mirror reflects back the face of who is looking into it. That's what it was created to do. 
That's what water and puddles do. But what happens if when we gaze into that puddle and we look into the mirror, what we see, even though it's us, is not what we want to look like, not the reflection we wish to see. I discovered this week a really beautiful and tragic song. And in it, the songwriter is pining for a world without the weight of mirrors. She's pining for a world where the only perception of herself is the perception that she herself thinks without any sort of objective or outside influence. And she says things like this. She says, I'd be cooler. I'd be smarter. I'd probably be a better daughter. I would say when I was hungry, I'd walk the door and not want to cry. I'd be louder. I'd be honest. I probably wouldn't be so self-conscious. As we hear these words, there's this sense of optimism. Like, that sounds great. A world without mirrors where you don't feel the burden of, of appearances. You don't feel the judgment of others. That sounds like a wonderful song. But this doesn't sound like a Disney song. The music and tone is tragic because the songwriter knows that she cannot live in this world, that we cannot escape our own reflection. And yet she longingly wonders, if I lived in a house with no mirrors, where the walls didn't talk back at me, maybe I'd dream a bit bigger if there was nothing to see. If I lived in a house with no mirrors where the walls didn't pick me apart, maybe my skin would be thicker if I lived in a house with no mirrors. And as I was struck by this painful longing the songwriter embraced, I realized that actually Solomon's words here paint an even bleaker picture. You see, you could... I think, isn't there some fable where the queen got rid of all the mirrors in her kingdom? We could live in a world where we break all the mirrors. You could go find a room sealed off from all moisture, uh, and, and you could know that no puddles will form, that you won't ever have to encounter yourself, and yet you can never escape your own reflection. Because it's not just the mirror and the puddle that shows the face, but as Solomon says, it is the heart that shows the man. You see, you can never see yourself, but you cannot escape yourself. The problem we have is not what we see from the outside that burdens us. The problem is just as nature was designed to reflect what it encounters, so too our hearts are designed to reflect who we really are. And we cannot escape this, this image without edit or comment or context. We love the idea of not seeing who we really are, of not being burdened by anyone's thoughts except our own, but not seeing your reflection doesn't change the reality of who you really are. We can constantly pass by the mirrors of life with our busyness and our pace, but just because we don't see it doesn't mean it's not there. It just means it's unaddressed. But when we slow down to examine what our hearts show about who we really are, you will find something. Something will sit staring back at you. And the question is, will you like it?
Will it make you comfortable? Will it disquiet you, make you anxious, insecure, frustrated, or puffed up? And this is why the gospel is a safe place, actually a world safer than a house with no mirrors. It's the life of those who come to look into the mirror of what James says is the law of liberty. To examine ourselves in light of what Jesus means for us. Look at how we meet Jesus, in, or how Jesus speaks in, in Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. As we examine our mirrors today, here is your hope. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he, that's Jesus, was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. You see, Jesus came for all of us who would look into our hearts and find a reflection which we are not comfortable with, a reflection which we wish were different, a reflection which would be embarrassing or even condemning. Jesus did not come for the picture-perfect Instagram models. He came for those who are often ashamed to look or self-righteously trying to change what they see. You see, we by nature live out, we magnify, we display the realities of our hearts and we cannot not. No more than your mirror would start showing pictures of your dog when you look into it will your heart ever reflect something other than who you really are. But in a world where we can look out and we could see waistlines and change that, and we could see wardrobes and change that, we could see self-worth and change that, how do we know what our heart looks like? How do we actually see a reflection of that which is truly inside of us? And here, this is where Solomon wants to help us. And knowing the reality of always projecting who we really are, he now wants to help you see that reality. And he gives two tests. And he doesn't quite tell us what to look for. Instead, he tells us what to feel for. He gets at our emotional responses. And this is our second point today, the exam of our hearts. Read with me once more verses 20 and 21. Shale and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. And so here, we see two tests, a test in verse 20 and a test in verse 21. The first is the test of the satisfaction of our eyes, and the second, which we'll look at in a moment, is a test of the substance of our praise. And Solomon carries this theme of vision from verse 19 into verse 20. I went in for my first official eye exam a couple years ago, and they did uh, all the things you normally think they would do. They put a series of numbers and shapes and colors in front of you and ask you what you see. And it turns out my right eye was absolutely terrible at seeing anything. They're like, you should have a lazy eye because it actually doesn't do anything. It's the laziest of all the eyes we've seen. It's just self-righteous and points in the same direction. But Solomon here holds up to the eyes of our heart a myriad of images. And here he shows that the problem is not that our eyes see too little, but that the eyes of our heart see too much. 
And he points, paints this picture with this illustration of death. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the grave. Abaddon is this word for destruction, ruin. And he shows us the unfortunate truth that death is never satisfied. A man of high class might be at a dinner party and know that though he loves this food, it's improper for, her to, for him to continue eating. There might be parents who love having kids, but for prudence or health reasons, they might say, we have enough. Even my children know that there comes a time where they will turn down ice cream. They will turn down sweets, which might tell you more about what life is like in my house that we actually let our kids find that line. But even them, even they find the line of too much of a good thing. But death knows no such limits. There's always room for one more. It's not slowing down. It's not stopping. And it's showing no sign of having its fill. So too, says Solomon, are the eyes of man. And the first test of our heart is this desire, this desire of our eyes. When you look out into the world, what do your eyes hunger for? And here Solomon is mixing metaphors, isn't he? Because he's not ultimately talking about what our eyes see. He's talking about what our eyes eat. (laughs) You eat the commodities of the world with your eyes. It stirs in you a hunger, a desire, an appetite for something. When you look into the world, what do you see? Do you see a seemingly endless buffet of options, which hopefully, if consumed properly, might satisfy our hearts, scratch our itches, and bring us the happiness we've always wanted? We've got a door downstairs um, in the library. It's the only door. We actually, this is how janky our life is. We don't have a key to this building, um, and we've never had a key to this building. We have a single pin code that we use, and all the other doors we just hope we don't get you know, trapped outside of. And this door code has 12 digits on it, a 12-digit pin pad. And if you can punch in the right five-digit combination, it opens up and gives you what you want. It allows you to come in and have access to that which you were hoping for. Which of this pin pad, if I did my math properly, of a 12-digit pin pad, there are 248,832 possible five-digit combinations. Which means mathematically and logically, one could sit there at that pin pad and find the right combination. But why do we use pin pads? Because we know that no one is foolish enough or even competent enough to sit there and put in the time and effort to exhaust all 248,832 combinations. But the truth is, you have more of a chance of randomly guessing the pin code to Fort Knox than you do looking out into this world and thinking that the right combination of worldly desires will bring you the satisfaction you want. But our eyes tell us if we can just get it right, if we could plug in the right math, we will finally find satisfaction. I tried it with a house, and I tried it with a master's degree, but maybe this time if I, if I go and I can get married. Or maybe you've had marriage and it's like, well, maybe a single wife is enough. Maybe if I get a mistress and a good vacation. Maybe if I can have kids and also have no debt. 
Maybe if I can have an adventure and the newest car. Maybe if I can have that bike that I can go out and have this level of fitness with, then I'll find it. Maybe if I move to a place with warmer weather. Maybe if I do all of this. Maybe, 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 maybe our eyes will find no end. So when you look, what do you see? How does your heart encounter the things of this world? Is it endlessly seeking and never satisfied? How significant is this? Well, Jesus, in the parable of the sower, gives three threats to gospel faith and gospel joy. And look at what one of those threats are in Mark chapter 4, verses 18 through 19. And the other ones are sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, that is the gospel. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. That's just Jesus. He seems to be a big deal in scripture. What does John say? Well, consider what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eye and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The desire our eyes have for this world is not insignificant when it comes to your joy and it's actually not insignificant when it comes to your confidence in salvation. There is a brokenness of eyes that are always looking and never finding. There is a joylessness and a burden that the gospel wants to help. Desire unrestrained shows a heart which doesn't look good. We all have this in in different areas and for different things. My heart wrestles to ever be satisfied with the amount of football I've watched. If there's a line in my heart where I say that's too much football, I certainly haven't found it. And so with my wife and with my family, we are questioning how to respond with this. And the truth is, I don't watch as much football as I used to. And yet, my heart is dissatisfied, discontent, and anxious because I think I'm missing out on something. And discovering these desires makes me uncomfortable. And it will make you uncomfortable. It'll make you frustrated to see why you're looking for things Because you realize we don't approach any of this with a neutral heart. We approach it thinking we can crack the code and break the case. But those desires are there, whether you know it or not. And ignorance is not bliss. The desires of our hearts show us something. But so too, says Solomon, does the test of praise. Here in verse 21, we see the second test. That's the substance of our praise. Look again at verse 21. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and a man is tested by his praise. 
And so we've seen a lot in Proverbs. Uh, Solomon warn us of the flatterer, the one who uses their words to butter us up because Solomon knows the danger of praise. He was a king. He was much praised. And he knows probably more than any of us what praise looks like at an ultimate level. He knows that our hearts desire so deeply to be made much of. He knows we want others to affirm us and to praise us. And this is actually a good desire. This is actually a desire that God has put into our hearts. We long for the affirmation of others because we long to be affirmed by God. Now, we love Reformed theology here at Sovereign Hope. We know that we are depraved, that there's nothing in our hearts which merit God's affection for us. We know God is infinitely glorious. He is not just looking for something to praise in the world to supplement his emotional lack. And yet, Scripture shows that God really does delight in making much of those whom he saves. When God created Adam and Eve... His goal was that should they endure, he would satisfy them endlessly. In fact, Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, before the foundation of the world, God's goal was union and joy through Jesus Christ. We also know in Zephaniah 3.17 that the prophet says God will rejoice over those he saves with gladness. He will quiet you. He will put your anxious heart to bed with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Jesus, the perfect, spotless, eternal son, when he was here on the earth, God lavished in wonderful affirmation. He said, behold my son with whom I am well pleased. We want praise. Praise is such a powerful pull in our hearts because we were made to be affirmed by our creator. We were made to have God's view of us be something we long for. But as broken people who have broken fellowship with this God, who know we are not worthy of praise, but actually worthy of punishment on account of our sin, the only place we could find the affirmation we long for is by coming to God the Father, robed in the righteousness of the Son by faith. That when we put our faith in Jesus and repent, he takes off our disgusting cloak and puts on the wonderful robe of the beloved. That we stand before God with the same approval of Jesus himself. This is where you are finally made much of. My question to you right now, before we go any further, is has God given you that affirmation in Jesus Christ? Do you know that when you approach the Father through the posture of faith in the Son, that he says the same thing. Behold, my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you labor for that wonderful affirmation? Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and now I will place you over much. Do you realize there is praise meant to be lived for here? Praise not in a possibility, but praise in a promise through Jesus Christ. That is the wonderful good news of the gospel. And yet we know how easy it is to miss the true gospel and to supplement false gospels. Meaning we miss the good news of God's affirmation to us in Jesus Christ. 
Instead, we try to cling to the good news of man's affirmation to us in the world. You want to know how powerful that is? You want a sign of our brokenness? Is how quickly the peace of the day, the stillness of our heart, and the joy we have is often disrupted and disquieted by two simple words. Good job. That sounds benign, doesn't it? But you want to know how to become instantly self-conscious? Have somebody praise your work. And next time you do it, that exact same task, what do you think? Why isn't anyone saying it this time? Did I do it well enough? Have I lost it? Are they upset with me? What's wrong with me? (laughs) Or, you want to know how to become self-righteous? Have someone praise your work. And next time you do it, you think, I really am awesome at this. If only the other people in this company would work as hard as I do, we'd be fine. These people should be grateful of everything I bring to the table because I get the job done. Augustine, reflecting on his own heart, said this. He said, by these temptations, we are assailed daily, O Lord. Without ceasing, we are assailed. Our daily furnace is the tongue of men. In other words, the furnace which tests is the praise of men. He went on to say this, and I wonder what you would think. He gave two options. If you had the ability to be knowingly wrong, but to be praised by all men, or to be knowingly right and shamed by all men, which would you choose? Augustine said, I know what my heart would want. I would rather live a lie and be praised by men than be knowingly right and shamed by them. But this is the hinge of the gospel. Our world doesn't only cater to our desire for praise, it actually quantifies it. Imagine how boring social media would be if it didn't quantify how many people liked, shared, viewed, or favorited your posts. These are not neat tools built in by the developers. These developers know that it is precisely this quantification of praise which makes you come back, which triggers the dopamine in your mind. In fact, some websites knowingly withhold those notifications until you are inactive for a certain period of time. And then you get that notification that says, someone's praising you. Come and see. Someone's making much of you. Come and see who praise and your relationship to it tests your heart. That means that the wise person realizes that we need to be cautious in how we receive praise and in how we give praise. We ought to be people who receive praise. Christians should be praiseworthy or praise, praiseful? What's the, that term? I don't know. Affirming. We'll use that. That's better. Affirming people. Truly affirming, wonderfully affirming. Oftentimes we see passages like this and we just say, we don't need emotional butt slaps as Christians. We trust God's word. We're not going to flatter people. We're all right. If you don't see that God's pleased with you, you certainly don't need me to tell you that. But look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter four, verse eight. He says this, finally, brothers, 
Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, think, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, Paul wants you to fit your eyes with the lens of what is praiseworthy. That means if you're someone who loves God's truth, and you see God's wonderful working in this world, you see God's wonderful spirit changing the lives of those around you, and you refuse to affirm them, you are repressing God's truth. We should then affirm things that are genuinely affirmable. We should praise things which are praiseworthy. We should go to people and say, what a miracle that God is doing this in your life. What a gift that you were able to serve me in this way as Jesus served me. So question is, do you spend more time sitting on your praise for fear of how others would respond than you do praising people and letting God sort that out in their heart? Or do you spend more time praising the things which are worthy of affirmation in the eyes of the world and neglecting the things that are praiseworthy in the eyes of the Lord? Praise tests our hearts. But secondly, when we receive praise, and I pray that if you're here at this church and God is working in your life, that you are praised by us, that we rejoice over what God is doing in your life. But when we are praised by people, do you understand that praise in light of the God who is at the source of all of it? Look at how Paul praises the church in Corinth, a church which is for all, like if you're ever worried about praising someone for one thing, and worrying that all the sins in their life are going to go unaddressed. No church was more of a flaming ball of disaster than the Corinthian church. And yet Paul praises what is true, not to not address what's wrong, but to acknowledge that this can be really wrong and broken, and you guys are like the Jerry Springer of churches, but also like God's doing wonderful things. And you should be optimistic. Look at how he praises the church in verses 4 and 5. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge. And so what is Paul doing? He's helping the church know that they are doing something well. They're enriched in speech and knowledge. They are thinking and speaking rightly, and he praises them for it. But what's the basis of his praise? Oh, that God did this in your heart. Oh, that God has loosed your lips and given you eyes to see. When we are praised, do we take the praise of us and turn it into praise of God? Do we genuinely appreciate what people have done and we say, what a gift that God has given me to think like this, to serve like this, to love like this, despite my failures that I might be helping to others, is something that only God can do. And as good as these ideas sound of praising what's praiseworthy in the eyes of the Lord, and turning our praise of us into praise of God, we know the burdening effect praise has in our hearts. We know we have the lust to be seen as praiseworthy. We have the lust to even be seen as someone who doesn't care if people praise us. But if you're one who looks at our hearts like me, I see in both of these tests a reflection that makes me anxious. A reflection that I would wish to not see. And so what is our hope? 
And this is what I love about the two concluding illustrations Solomon uses. Read with me verses 21 and 22. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, and a man is tested by his praise. Crush a fool in a mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. So here we see our last point today, and this is the hope for our heart. At this point, we know we need a savior because we need to be saved from what we see. We need to be saved from what we know is true in our heart. And if we're honest, we know our hearts leak out before others. We can see that, right? Our spouses, our roommates, our friends have all seen things that we wish they didn't. But you know things that even they don't know. You know the depth of the twistedness, of the grotesqueness of the heart that looks back at you. So what do you do when your own heart condemns you? What do you do when the pollen of the world, when you walk by a mirror, when your child is screaming at night and you're tired and frustrated, when you're burdened at work, when you're puffed up on pride and that pollen causes the inflammatory reaction where we feel frustrated, disappointed, self-righteous, what do we do when our hearts are provoked? For the fool, verse 21 paints a pretty bleak picture, doesn't it? There's no hope for you. He uses this picture of milling grain with a mortar and pestle. And back in Egypt during this time, they'd take a big, it's not like the little mortar and pestle we use in our science labs right now. Similar, but, but bigger. It's how they would make their food. It's how they'd mill their grain. It's a big, hard rock or hollowed out um, uh, place of the earth. And they would throw their grain in it. And they get this big pestle, this big solid rod, and they would mash it and grind it and crush it together until the grain became this homogenous mixture, which would be used to be baked or whatever they wanted to do with it. And for a fool, the testing of this world and the promise of your potential punishment will not remove folly from you. The way in which the world tests our heart will drive our foolishness deeper and deeper into our life. And it will even cause it to spread and poison more and more of our hearts. We know life is hard, don't we? We know when our hearts are provoked when they speak up against us. We know how fickle life is. But even more than our subjective experience, the Bible holds up to us an objective reality that one day each and every one of us will stand before Christ as judge. And at that point, no amount of suffering, no amount of woe is me, no amount of hardships can change your standing before the Lord. There's no hope for the one who is crushed by this world because it cannot remove our problem. But there is hope. In fact, there's hope even for those who feel like a fool. That this painful life, the life that songwriter wrote of, the one that feels trapped, stuck, and in danger, that doesn't have to be your life. The end of verse 21 doesn't have to be your end. Look at what Solomon said earlier in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. We've all been brought to feel that. We've seen our folly. But the rod of discipline drives it far from him. 
here's a child who has folly in his heart, and instead of being pressed further in, it is driven from him. It's separated. You see, God is not opposed to children who are in need. God is not opposed to people learning to walk. God is not opposed of momentary lacks of maturity. God is opposed to those who are fools, unwilling to change or repent. And so what's the solution when you encounter this heart? You can either harden your heart and refuse to acknowledge God's work in your life, or you can see that behind these very tests is the work of God for your good. You see, where a life lived apart from God crushes and crushes only to make us more hardened and more homogenous with our sin, a life lived in wisdom realizes that God instead wants to use the trial of life to separate that which is valuable from that which is not. In other words, God's desire is not simply to make life hard, but it's actually to make you holy. And that's the distinction inside these two metaphors, isn't it? The fool is ground up in a mortar and pestle to become more and more like everything else. But the wise man is what? He is refined by a master craftsman in order to separate the dross from the gold. Silver and gold are these metals that when produced naturally from the earth are filled with impurities. And so what they would do is they'd throw them in these smelting furnaces, in these crucibles which would be superheated, It would cause what is pure to be separated from that which is impure. The hope for us as God's children is that when we encounter the painful truths of our heart, I would say that life at every stage is just more sanctifying. There's more things that prick and pull at your heart and convince you that this is going to be hard and this is going to be difficult. But when we encounter these painful truths of our heart, when we see our reflection, we would rather not see. We can trust that God actually wants to refine us as a master craftsman. A fool encounters his own reflection with no hope for change. But the wise man sees that in the hands of a Lord like this, your sin no longer defines you if Christ is working on you. When we look at these two illustrations, both share a reality of stress and testing. You will have trial. Your heart will be wounded. But only one assumes that we'll be better off for it. And that's the one applied to us in the grace of the gospel of Jesus. Look what Solomon said earlier in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, where he picks up this same metaphor. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. The Lord tests your heart. The Lord knows your heart. And knowing everything about that, he still chose to send his son to die for it. It is a safe place to encounter what we don't like to see when we learn to see what Jesus has done that he has come not only to save our hearts, but to change them bit by bit over time. It is a hard, painful process. The furnace gets warm, the crucible gets uncomfortable, but God is doing a work in your life as you choose to bring that to Jesus and trust the craftsman with it. We have a wonderful hope, a hope that one day the crucible will be cooled and the furnace will be put away. Look at this hope in 1 Peter 1, where Peter says this, Verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
You've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here we see the crucible of praise held out for us in a way which is truly hopeful. That one day, one glorious day, the work of Jesus will be done in us and we will stand before the throne unashamed, untainted, perfectly valued in the righteousness of Jesus. We endure this trial, this affliction, this reflection as those hopeful that it gets better even if the furnace gets hotter. The world will test your heart, but only Jesus promises to refine it. Only Jesus promises to create in you a reflection which we begin day by day to cringe less at. Because we know whatever shows up, Jesus is able to help us with it. Jesus is able to care for us in it. So will you be strong enough to gaze into this water and to trust yourself with this craftsman? As a church, we have the privilege of helping others become comfortable with the work of Jesus which means we will find in our hearts and in the hearts of others warts and blemishes. But will we bring those to the Savior and say there is a way to change? This is why Jesus has come, so that day by day we can be transformed into the image of God for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that even as we close in reciting a creed and in singing a song, that you would help us to examine our hearts, that we would look soberly at realities that we would rather leave unaddressed, and that as we see the weaknesses and wounds of our heart, we see how faithful you are to refine us. I pray you would spare us from thinking that this world can fix it when this world only makes the problem worse, but instead help us to see the king who was crushed for us so that we might be redeemed with the promise of redemption. We pray all this in your name. Amen.